Welcome to Acamedia, a podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. It's a wondrous world of. I was gonna. It's not preposite. Yes. It, no. Yeah. I, I don't know. What, I don't know what they're. Yeah. It's. It's. We're. If you can't tell, we're, our brains are already on spring break, and so we're <laughs> just trying to get in gear here. Um, That's us. Yeah, we're also getting ready for SEMS, which will happen. At some point after you hear this episode, um, yeah, we are actually going to have a live episode in Denver. I have no idea what it'll be. It'll also be, I think, just me because, Michael, you're not going to SEMS. That's right. I'm not going to be able to make it. But I hear that um, there might be juggling or like oh. a marching band or okay like- yeah we're still working on the contracts yeah. for that but yeah. it'll be uh 3 p.m on saturday uh check the location in your program uh, but yeah 3 p.m on saturday come by we'll have um maybe face painting for the kids oh i love that maybe maybe <laughs> balloon uh balloon art. animals balloon yes. animals but yes. not the kind that are made out of ceramic and that sell for forty thousand dollars. That's right. Yes, we we don't have that kind people of people would break them. To, yes, exactly. We we can't trust SEMS members to not knock over our priceless artworks right. that we would bring in. So yeah, um, but we invite you to come check us out. Sit in the audience. I might interview you because I have no idea if anyone's going to be there. So it could just be me and whoever you are out there, and I'll talk to you. Fabulous um, opportunity. The other thing I, I want to uh, have a call for is uh, help for a an endeavor I'm doing for the SEMS board. We are creating a set of what we're calling educational resources. So in some cases, this is FAQs. Like there's FAQs about how to, um, you know, write a proposal. Um, and then we're also thinking podcasts and, and videos like we've done when we announced the um, last conference being virtual. Um, we want to create a set of these that will help members understand how things run with SEMS and how to take best advantage of all the offerings of SEMS. So I am working on one that will be, I don't know, a podcast or a video. It depends on what kind of materials I get. But answering the question of how do you make the most of an in-person conference? Because it's been three years since we've done SEMS. So the muscle memory is gone. It's gone. So some folks out there might have forgotten how to conference. And then there are certainly uh, new folks who have never been to an SEMS in person. And we want to provide them with advice on how to make the most of the conference. So I'm looking for people to offer advice. And this is just real quick stuff you'd read into your phone um, and, you know, little snippets then that I can put together in a video or a podcast and provide a you know, basically a collection of advice for how to make the most of an SCMS conference. Nice. Yeah. So if you have some of that advice, contact me, cbecker1 at nd.edu, or just Google my name and Notre Dame and you'll find me. Christine Becker's my name. Did we say our names? We might have forgotten you know, our names. No, I don't think we actually did. Yeah. So I'm Christine Becker. You are? I am. Wow. Nice. Who, I'm Michael Kackman. All right. There we go. So yeah. So just Google me and you'll find my email um so yeah so we're hoping to put together a really fun thing for uh those who just don't quite remember how it works to do an in-person conference it's a wacky thing 
Yeah. There's also going to be plenty at the conference of, um, you know, in terms of learning about how SEMS works, learning more about the challenges that face uh, many of our members, such as those who are employed in precarious positions. And that brings us to our feature interview today. And this comes courtesy of our uh, intrepid reporter, Bill Kirkpatrick. And he is talking here to Finley Freibert, who has been a key figure in SEMS's precarious labor organization. As Bill explains, we talked with PLO members back in 2019, and the organization has since gotten representation on the SEMS board. So this is a great follow-up to consider what has changed and what hasn't since then, since 2019, um, for precarious employed faculty, both within SEMS and in media studies in general. Yeah, it's a good conversation, uh, revisiting things that we clearly need to still pay attention to and um, address. Yeah, so let's give it a listen. I am here with Dr. Finley Freibert, who is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. Dr. Freibert is co-editor with Dr. Alicia Cosman of Refocus, the films of Doris Wishman, published in 2021 by Edinburgh University Press. He is currently working on a book manuscript on the history of media industries run by women and gay men in 1970s Los Angeles. But the reason that we have him on today is because we wanted to talk about his role in the precarious labor organization. Longtime listeners may know that we had an interview with members of the Precarious Labor Organization back in 2019. That was episode 43, if you want to go back and listen. We talked at that time with Jamie Rogers, Jennifer Highland Wong, and Bruce Brazel about their efforts to get the PLO off the ground. In the meantime, the PLO now has representation on the SCMS board, which was something that they were striving for at the time. And Finley Freibert is now uh, co-leading that organization. So Finley, uh, welcome to Acamedia. Thank you for having me. Um, it's, yeah, it's great to be here and talk. All right. So uh, congratulations on the position at SIU. You are apparently no longer now precariously employed, although I suppose we all are at some degree. Um, how has it been for you thinking about your years as precariously employed. I know you worked at a couple of different institutions and now to get that secure job, um, but coming from this perspective of the PLO and fighting for years for uh, people who don't have that secure job. I wonder if you have any thoughts or reflections on on that transition and how it might go. Um, definitely. I mean, I mean, I'm still very much interested and um, active in the PLO and I was elected in 2021. And so I'm serving a three-year term. Yeah, I'm definitely going to continue to work on initiatives for the PLO. So what uh, kinds of things were you doing before? So where were you and what was your position? And I've worked at several different universities as a basically an adjunct. It has different titles at different universities, but I, uh, I adjuncted at my alma mater, uh, University of California, Irvine. I've also adjuncted at the Kentucky College of Art and Design, as well as University of Louisville um, in Louisville, Kentucky. So. Right. All of those places I've been employed in these basically part time positions and come, come trying to, you know, make ends meet with what I can get each semester. And I've, I've had really good um, experiences at those positions. But of course, there is always issues with, you know, not making enough money, juggling basically um, health insurance and kind of the continuity of that is always difficult uh, when precariously employed. And numerous other issues, even just pursuing my own research is extremely difficult because, you know, there's a large percentage of precariously employed people that, you know, don't get any 
source of uh, research funding, and I, I was one of those. So that's that's been my experiences, and um, I've worked in different departments as well. So, for example, at University of Louisville, I initially was working in comparative humanities, which basically oversaw the film studies minor there. And so I was teaching film classes at first, but as the pandemic went live and everything, um, we had less enrollments, there was less offerings in that regard. And so I started to adjunct for the gender and sexuality studies department. Um, so that was a really excellent experience as well. No, thank you for that. And I also appreciate how you summarize there some of the challenges. Another one that I've run into because actually I've gone from being securely employed to precariously employed for family reasons, moving to Winnipeg and things like library access, like how do I even get, you know, or um, continually planning new courses based on what the needs of your employer are, right? So, oh, you need me teaching what you were just saying, gender and sexuality study. Okay. I'll prep a class on that. I'll prep three classes on that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so there's very little time for your research as well there in terms and also all the other things that we have going on. So, yeah. Definitely. So at the time that PLO members were on Academia before, the effort was to get representation on the SCMS board. That has now happened in the meantime. So I wanted to ask you now as a follow-up, what has that meant for the organization? What has changed? What are you seeing in terms of movement uh, on the part of SCMS to help uh, people who are precariously employed? Well, yeah, it's been a, a really good thing to have representation on the board, definitely. Um, so since I've been elected to co-chair, we had Becky on the board initially, Becky Gordon, and then Becky was outgoing and uh, Jamie Rogers was elected for our current board representation, but Becky's still very much involved in the organization. Um, and so in the discussions with both Becky and uh, Jamie, we've really gotten a sense of kind of the inner workings of SCMS and the direct communication has really allowed for us to understand more about the organization and also clarify aspects of SCMS as an organization that we otherwise would be unaware of. So for example, a lot of our members, um, I've talk directly to people who have said, why do we keep having to go back to in-person? Why can't this be completely online? Or why can't we have hybrid options like conferences, like Consoling Passions? They, they have it on the application that you can just apply to be online or apply to be in-person. I mean, we've gotten a sense that in order to address these kind of questions, the direct communication with the board allows for us to answer that. And so, for example, we've had discussions with people that we've had to say, you know, we have a different situation than other organizations. We might have contracts with hotels that have to be dealt with, or um, also we might have be a larger scale than other organizations and might not be able to take on the financial burden yet of doing hybrid options all the time. So we're definitely still trying to push for those options uh, as a organization, as a precarious stable organization towards the SMS board. But we do understand that there are difficulties in some cases for doing these type of options, um, hybrid options, for example, for conferences. So um, that's just an example of how communication the board with the board, I think, helps to clarify some of the issues that we've been trying to bring up. It's also allowed us a more direct way to present our current initiatives and concerns to members of the board. So instead of basically having to find someone who's on the board and, you know, convey those initiatives to them, and then maybe they will hopefully convey it to the board and we have this more direct way. Um, so that's really excellent. Are you finding that the board is receptive? Are they listening? Are they integrating your concerns into planning policy and so forth? 
I think, yeah, in, in general, the board is receptive and we've been given a platform to uh, speak about our concerns and definitely there's a conversation going on. I'll just give a few examples of some of the things that we brought up that we hope there will be some movement on at some point sometime soon. Um, so there's the job search and precarious labor best practices proposals. So we have proposals on both best practices for job postings on the SMS website, as well as best practices for uh, precarious labor hiring processes. And so we're hoping that um, since we presented those, that those will be moved upon. I, th I believe ad hoc committees have been formed for at least one of those or maybe for both of them. Um, there's also the library access issue that you brought up. So uh, Becky Gordon, She's been really um, kind of the head of, of this initiative, and she's gone on to various conferences uh, to basically organize panels about this. So Consoling Passions, for example, uh, we've been trying to figure out, is there some institution that will allow us to basically opt into their library access either for a small price or for basically a set of people that have been determined um, to need this access through our organization? We haven't gotten a lot of movement on that yet. There's been really a lot of conversations, but uh, we don't have a direct way to do that yet. So we're still working with options, but that's been one issue we've discussed at length with the board. And so we're hoping that movement will eventually occur on that. And then also there's the, the issue of future SMS conferences plan to be whether in-person or uh, hybrid. And so our current understanding is that SMS has contracts with certain hotels. So we have several conferences that have to be in person at least for the next, I think it's four years, something like that. And that the hybrid option is on the table, but we're not sure whether it'll be affordable yet. So we're hoping that we can get movement on that front as well. On the library access issue, what is the challenge there? What are some of the difficulties? Because it seems like it's the kind of thing that should be easy. At one point, I heard that even Oklahoma might be offering library access. Apparently, that hasn't been achievable yet. What what exactly is keeping that from just being an easy fix? That's an excellent question. So as I mentioned before, Becky Gordon has really been the, the head of this. And I've had conversations in meetings with the whole PLO and with Becky about this issue. And so my understanding of it, I'm, I haven't been on the front line exactly with this, but I, I have participated in these conversations. Uh, my understanding is that there's multiple issues or stumbling blocks, I guess you could call it, or roadblocks to getting library access that have to be basically overcome. And so one of them is just simply the IT aspect of getting library access. So you have to have a login through the university to actually access the library. Now, the, those type of logins don't exactly exist currently because the people that get library access are usually um, students, faculty, staff members, or possibly alumni. But typically in the alumni case, what I've seen, um, this may be different at some universities, but what I've seen is that you only get very restricted access to something like New York Times or something like that. Like it's not like a full digital access to all the databases that would be needed. Um, so that's, that's one issue, just simply the IT issue, which is connected to, but different from basically an HR issue. So in many cases, you have to have some sort of identifiable identity to HR departments in order to get that IT account um, to log into the library. So that's another stumbling block or roadblock, I guess I would call it, is that you have to have some way to get through HR and get approved through HR for that. So this whole initiative would have to be approved both through HR and through the IT department of the hosting university, and it would have to be approved through the library. Now, with the library, there's other kinds of roadblocks. 
Some of those would be, for example, claims about copyright issues or who is actually allowed to have access. So for example, databases might have proprietary requirements about who is actually allowed to access that database within the university. So they might have a requirement like the only students can access this and they're keeping track of how many users are actually accessing that. And that could, if there's additional people added on, say there's several hundred people added on or something like that, that might be a red flag to them. They may say that the university is violating that. This is just a hypothetical example, but this, these are some kind of concerns that have been brought up by, for example, people who work at some of the, the libraries that we've talked to. So even if Oklahoma were to, out of the goodness of their heart, open up some kind of affiliated scholar category and let an extra, say, 300 people into their library system, they can't just do that. That's a big enough number that the databases are going to notice or the, the vendors are going to notice and they're going to want more compensation. That uh, becomes a problem for HR. That becomes a problem potentially for copyright and, and for the legal people. So there are all these kinds of complicating factors in the host institution. So without somebody who's at a place that has the resources and is willing to, to make the case for why this is important. And of course, you, when you open it up to a bunch of media scholars, then that's just uh, a can of worms for um, all the other departments who have, you know, who because I assume every other department, every other field is facing these same challenges. Definitely. I think that's an excellent way to put it. So one other thing that I remember Jamie Rogers was talking about was the possibility of childcare at conferences. So you talked about the conferences in person coming up. As it happens just before that, or just after that interview, our in-person conferences were canceled. So the issue of childcare has presumably um, been uh, addressed at whatever local level of the individual. Um, are you seeing SCMS working on that issue for the upcoming conference in Denver? I haven't heard anything at this point about that. I, I really hope that that's a possibility. I did recently look back about what's been available in the past. And actually, I noticed that there was a uh, dependent care subsidy available at, for the 2020 conference that was planned in Denver. Uh, but obviously, that didn't actually happen. That conference was canceled. So hopefully, again, that will be instituted at, at the very least, um, if not childcare available at the conference. I think that was what Jamie had mentioned in that past Academia interview, that other organizations that have like a, a child care available at the conference, um, which is a little bit more than a subsidy, I would say, um, definitely would be a lot more help than, than a subsidy and definitely is needed. Um, so I, I really hope that that becomes available for Denver. I hope so, too. I hope that folks are listening and working on that because it seems like a relative that does seem in contrast to the other issue, uh, like a relatively easy fix, although one that costs money and I get it costs resources and requires space, you know, accommodation and things like that. I think it was Jamie that brought up in that interview or maybe I'm remembering a different discussion, but um I mean, it's absolutely essential. Like some panels have been canceled before because people could not find childcare. Um, so it's it's something that's essential for the conference to go forward and for significant panels to actually be able to take place. And just you know, to talk about an equity issue and living into our goals and our and our you know into our politics, it's the kind of thing that should have been solved long ago, frankly. But yeah, uh, two other things that I wanted to kind of follow up on in that previous interview. One was uh, mentoring and advocacy on the part of tenure track faculty 
to kind of improve the situation locally for their precarious colleagues and uh, free or at least reduced conference registration. Has there been any movement or initiatives on those? Uh, that's an excellent question. As far as I know, so I remember in the 2019 conference that there was a mentorship initiative that I believe was for the general organization. For people who were attending the conference, you could sign up for a mentee if you were a graduate student or if you were precariously employed and you were assigned one and then you had a meeting with them. So that was really helpful. And um, I definitely hope things like that continue to happen. I've also seen that in various caucuses and organizations throughout all of SEMS, that there have been really excellent mentorship opportunities. Um, a couple that I want to acknowledge, the GSO, the Graduate Student Organization, instituted a great program that involved precarious folks as well. So they were accepting applications for mentees for um, graduate students and people who were precariously employed. The Queer and Trans Caucus has a wonderful program that's named after uh, Alex Doty that I'm currently being mentored in. And I, I think that's a really excellent program and really encourages the mentor to have frequent connections and frequent discussions with the mentee. I think that one's really excellent. And, and another one I think is really excellent is the Adult Film History uh, SIG, which institutes their own uh, mentorships program. And I think is, is kind of akin to the um, Queer and Trans Caucus from my participation there that um, it's definitely encouraging an ongoing dialogue. So something that I'd like to see that I think hopefully would be instituted for the entire organization is continuing those in-person mentorships at the, at the in-person conferences, but also allowing for that to be virtual as well if that's needed. And then also trying to implement more of a dialogue and more of a kind of warm, I guess you could say, um, connection between the mentor and the mentee, because in the past I've seen examples um, that are, they just feel very cold. So examples where the mentee is told, uh, you can only send one page to your mentor and that's all they will be obligated to read. If you send them more, they might not read that. So, I mean, maybe that is an issue, but from a perspective of, of a mentee, that's, that's so cold. It's just like, this is a a check on someone's service that they're trying to get rid of and they just want to get rid of it as soon as possible. So I think it should be a more warm atmosphere. There shouldn't be limits on, oh, you'll, you'll read one page or something like that. I mean, in the ideal world, I think this should be basically preparing the mentee to go onto the job market if that's what they want to do, or to go prepare them to go to alt-act position, prepare them for whatever position they're trying to get into. And so it should allow for the mentor to guide them on, I would say, all of the job documents. I mean, it should be like they can give them a mock interview if, if that's needed um, so that that goal can ultimately be reached. And reading one page is kind of really minuscule and compared to if we're on the job market, you're asking the candidates to, to do a cover letter, to do a research statement, a teaching statement, a diversity statement, samples of like syllabi, um, examples of teaching evaluations. So if candidates are being asked to provide that much, I think a mentor-mentee relationship is is more than just meeting someone who's applying to a position at your university. It's actually more of a friendly type of relationship that's actually providing feedback on the job prospects of that candidate and how to improve those job prospects. So yeah. I think that's actually absolutely essential. 
these are these are great ideas and and you know of course the the whole issue of of you know we're all overworked we're all busy <laughs> and that and this is unpaid labor on the part of the mentor but it's absolutely crucial for the mentee to kind of get that support and that feedback and so forth and it's it becomes mm -hmm. one of those really challenges so i can see where the one page limit comes from but at the same time right. it's kind of like you know for those of us who take one page to clear our throat right that's really right. difficult limit to set on okay we'll give you this much and no further i'm sure individual mentors go on much more than that with their individual mentees and right. uh, you know i confess i have not been a mentor i've not volunteered or signed up for that so uh, i am wary about calling out those who are serving and are trying to do what they can in that role but i think it's you're right that it's yeah what's going to actually be helpful here for folks right definitely um, I know that the PLO recently conducted a survey and uh, was trying to get information from precariously employed members of SCMS or people who are regularly in and out of SCMS, let's say. Um, what can you tell us about the survey and the outcome of that survey? What did you learn? What kinds of uh, numbers and, and insights did you come up with? Definitely. So I looked over the outcomes of that and tried to summarize that a little bit. So I might read a little bit um, to quote from the actual outcomes and then also summarize some of the, the data that we, we received. So that was conducted in early 2021 at the height of the pandemic by then co-chairs Joe Clark, Darshana Sridharmini, and Jennifer Highland Wong. And so Jennifer and Joe are still co-chairs. I was elected 2021 after that took place, but I, I have looked over the the outcomes of this survey. And so it was really developed to assess the status and the needs of precariously employed and contingent faculty in film and media studies. And the function of the survey was to provide data on the constraints and pressures placed on contingent faculty, particularly in the context of the uh, global pandemic and the uh, increase in workloads and also the decrease in job prospects for many precariously employed faculty. Um, so there was eight weeks to complete the survey. As I mentioned before, it was a little bit over 300 responses. There's 309 responses. Most of those responses were based from people in the US. So we just wanna acknowledge that. We're trying to promote a more globally inclusive um, precarious labor organization. So these numbers may not be representative more globally. Uh, we'll just acknowledge that. And so the information was aggregated and it was presented at at least two of our, our meetings at the annual SCMS conferences. And so some of the numbers that we got were that 50% of the people who responded were contingent faculty for less than three years, 25% were precariously employed for three to six years, and then 25% were precariously employed for more than six years. And the average compensation per class for the people who responded was between $4,000 and $6,000 per class. Now, I'll say that that's more than I've gotten for classes before, so that you can get paid less than that for classes. There was a lot of, of responses that were talking about the difficulties in working in the context of the global pandemic, uh, the increased workload, as I mentioned before, and also the decrease in job prospects. So one quote, I think that really encapsulates that well from one of the respondents. They stated that um, all of my waking hours have gone to teaching prep and administrative work. I have made no progress in my own research. My workload is two to three times the normal amount, and I have no quality of life. So very much serious circumstances that were exacerbated by the global pandemic. 
But even in the absence of the global pandemic, there has been difficulty in many aspects of precarious laborers' work. So things like uncompensated university service, nearly three quarters of contingent faculty provided that. And I'll just give kind of a personal comment on that. Someone might say, well, just say no to that. Well, is that really possible? Are we going to be given classes, you know, the next semester if we say no to doing uncompensated service? If someone asked us to serve on their dissertation committee and we say no, how's that going to look for us um, going forward for our job prospects at this university? Things of that nature. So there are oftentimes consequences that can't really be quantified and can't really be predicted. So I think that number makes sense that three quarters of contingent faculty provide that uncompensated service is really something that needs to be maybe acknowledged and there needs to be some sort of way to to pay for that because it's it's going to be demanded of them no matter what. Um, 63% of respondents had no access to paid health care, 73% no access to grants for travel to conferences, 88% had no access to money to fund research, and 91% were expected to purchase classroom supplies, books, technology, etc. without reimbursement from their department. 92% of faculty spent more than $700 a year to attend conferences, to conduct research, and to outfit their classrooms. And 56% of contingent faculty had no access to libraries, which we discussed as a major issue for both planning for courses, but also for continuing to do research. And so I think an excellent statement from one of the survey respondents that sums up just in general, really a lot of the difficulties of being precariously employed in film and media. They stated, SMS leadership needs to know about the incredible difficulty of conducting any research or writing as an adjunct. I have no institutional support for research, no access to university libraries, I teach at community colleges. I also teach three to five classes every term, including summers. Sabbaticals aren't a thing for contingent faculty. There's simply no time or resources for us to do our own research. As a result, a vast number of scholars is effectively excluded from participating in academic life, end quote. So I think that really sums up the difficulties in juggling teaching and trying to get any research done if we want to have any sort of job prospects going forward. And I, I will mention too that uh, in relation to that, that in my experience, even if you're not required to do research at a, in a teaching position, a teaching adjunct position, oftentimes uh, you're asked for basically a, a rehire packet that includes like your CV, anything that might convince them to rehire you. So even if it's not explicitly required in your job, that is something that I've had anxiety about personally um, in being rehired for adjunct positions in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And even now in my current position, I have to fill out an annual activity report. And there's a section on there for scholarly activities. And and even though I'm teaching a 4-3 now, which is not as bad as some people, but definitely more than I'm used to teaching at my previous mm-hmm. position, you know, I feel absolutely compelled to say something about the research that I'm doing, even if I have no time to do research anymore. So okay. yeah, that's a, that expectation is real. And then I also wanted to just kind of echo what you said about service, how, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to have any opportunity to, to turn your precarious position into something more stable, or if you want to be rehired even uh, for these uh, contingent adjunct classes, you kind of have to be a team player. You have to say yes when you're asked to do something. And um, this falls, I would imagine, especially hard on faculty of color um, okay. and other faculty who are often asked to do additional labor for the purposes of representation as well. So it's an excellent point. Definitely. Yeah. The, the issue of health insurance was an interesting one. And 
you know, of course, that's one that may be more specific to the U.S. Now that I've moved to Canada, that's less of a problem for me, but I know that uh, most of our members are still in the U.S. So can you say more about that issue and what can be done there? I actually found one one respondent put this really well and actually ring true to my understanding of it and my experiences of um, difficulty accessing healthcare as a precariously employed uh, faculty member. And so they stated, it takes a massive toll on our lives in every way. There's no time for academic work since the pay for lectures is so low. You have to teach multiple classes every quarter. If you're not working, you're scrambling to apply to positions, both permanent and contingent, since there's no job security within the lecture position. It is necessary to stay in this rat wheel since both mine and my partner's healthcare is based on my ability to get appointed a certain number of courses per year. This causes serious anxiety every year, not knowing if we will have healthcare in the months to come. All this takes a toll on my family relationships and basic self-dignity. These conditions can wear a person down and has, for me, made me question if I want to follow this path any longer. So I think that really encapsulates well the anxieties um, a lot of precariously employed folks have about the continuity of healthcare and health insurance. Um, in my own experience, when you're teaching um, in a part-time position, an adjunct position, your health insurance, in the, at least in the U.S., is based on the number of classes you're teaching per quarter or per semester. And those are usually converted into like this HR number that's called FTE or full-time equivalent. Um, so if you meet a certain threshold at some universities, then you'll have uh, maybe basic health insurance. Um, if you fall below that threshold, you may not be eligible or you might have to pay higher premiums. Um, and in my experience, for example, uh, summer classes at a typical university are oftentimes um, given to either graduate students or full-time faculty because there's less summer classes than the typical semester. And so the adjunct faculty, the part-time faculty, it's very rare for them to get a class at certain universities. So that causes a situation where you're always either going to be kicked off of your healthcare or you're going to have to pay the like maximum premium if you want to keep your uh, health insurance package. So that's very concerning, very difficult situation. Um, there's serious issues as well uh, with partner insurance. So say that one person is employed full-time at one point and the other person's not, maybe that person can be covered in some situations. But then oftentimes there's these stipulations that if health insurance is offered to your partner, your partner has to uh, take the health insurance and not be on your plan anymore. So say that the partner is hired for like a part-time position that's not even full-time equivalent of 100, they're offered health insurance, but it's like a really high premium. So it's just an extremely unfair situation and it's a really serious issue. And uh, similarly, I imagine the contributions to any kind of retirement accounts, TIA, craft, those, those kinds of things are probably, I imagine, also very rare for people in these contingent positions. Definitely. I tried to look into that at one of my past positions and you had to have a certain FTE. You had to have like, I think, a threshold of above 70 something, 75 maybe percent. And another irony of that is that we'll say that you are FTE 100%. I've been FTE like one point something before over 100%. It's like, a depending on where you're working, that's, that's not even close to a full-time salary for like a professor, for even a person in Altac position. It's just a serious irony about the whole system that, well, if, if I am over full-time, why am I not be paying that much? So, um, but yeah, like you said, retirement, that's definitely a concern. And in some cases I've heard before that if a person say they're given like a full-time load several semesters in a row, and so they were able to contribute to retirement. 
we'll say that it goes down, I don't know, maybe the summer or maybe the semester after that falls below that threshold. I've heard of cases where they're just the company that was holding that money just gives them a check. So it's just like they're not holding that money anymore and they have to be taxed for it immediately or whatever. So. So looking forward, I heard one action item that would apply to a lot of our tenure track and tenured members, which is that issue of expecting service uh, from contingent faculty. And it seems like one takeaway could be if you are in a department and you have adjuncts and you can make it clear to them that no, you really should not, you know, you are safe to not do this service. You do not have mm. to do this extra committee work. That would seem one thing that would be in the power of um, many uh, stably employed people to improve the situation of their precarious colleagues. What other kinds of takeaways might there be for, for solutions for people who uh, might have some kind of institutional authority or power to change something? That's an excellent question. And I, I think a lot of the initiatives that the PLO is trying to put forward, um, I think, are, you know, calling attention to these issues and hopefully there can be solutions. So I think the, the mentoring, more opportunities for mentorship, I think, is a excellent point that you brought up before. Um, maybe even providing opportunities for mentoring people who want to enter the Alt-Act arena, because I know of several people who have done that and actually found it a little bit more livable in some situations um, in, in the sense that you might have a, a salary that's more of a living wage in some cases. So actually providing that kind of guidance might be something that could be lucrative in helping precariously employed folks. Um, also, the ability to give childcare at the conference, I think, is actually absolutely essential and also providing um, subsidies for precariously employed folks to um, apply to con the conference and also be members would be excellent as well. Uh, the PLO last year funded 10 memberships for contingent faculty in media studies with our money allocated from the board. And this year, the PLO has approved several proposals to aid contingent faculty. And actually, I, as far as I'm aware, there is a button that non-contingent folks with more means can donate to the PLO's membership fund. So that's one recent success. As far as I know, that's that's been implemented on the, the membership platform for SEMS. So that's something that we encourage people to donate to if they have the means. And that would help to fund more contingent faculty to become members of SMS. So that, I think that would be excellent. This year, we started accepting applications for precarious scholars to cover their membership to SMS this year for applying to the conference. There's also numerous initiatives that we're trying to put forward and we're continuing to put forward to help people. So Things like the uh, best practices in hiring, best practices in job posting for tenure track positions or non-tenure track positions as well to make those more accessible and equitable. Those best practices are on the table and we're hoping that there will be some movement uh, with those in the coming months. And then we also, in conjunction with the Environmental Studies Caucus, the e-waste committee, the Precarious Labor Organization uh, created and wrote up a proposal for increasing the opportunities for contingent faculty to participate in annual SMS conferences via remote means. Um, and I mentioned that before, so hybrid options. So we haven't seen movement on that yet, but hopefully some form of movement will happen since we've put out that proposal. And finally, I'll just mention a couple more things that, as I mentioned before, Becky Gordon has really led the way in this library access issue, trying to research what's possible, trying to research the possibilities and trying to really organize discussions with numerous folks. 
um, even, even outside of film and media studies. So there's work being done on that issue as well. And we hope something promising will eventually come from that. And then I'll finally just mention, we applied to have a global precarity seminar at the upcoming SCMS pre-conference. So hopefully that will, fingers crossed that hopefully that would be accepted. And then um, we'll have an event at the upcoming SCMS that we can discuss issues of global precarity to focus more on members who are not located in the U.S., located in North America specifically. So. Well, uh, Finley, thank you. And thanks to your colleagues uh, on the leadership of the PLO and on the board now. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, thank you for sharing with us some of the ongoing challenges, but also some of the insights and some of the practical things that folks can be doing. And the SCMS is now on their plate or in their lap to kind of take it further in some of these ways, as well as understanding that some of these challenges are just really, really hard. <laughs> it's really intractable. And, and um, you know, fixing what we can at a small local level feels like, okay, well, that's what we can do now. And, and hopefully that helps. But um, do you have any final thoughts or final words? I'll just say thank you for having me. And I think this is a really excellent opportunity to talk about some of the initiatives that the BLO has put forward and talk about many of the issues that are facing precariously employed folks. Great. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to Bill for that really great conversation. And thank you to Finley for giving such a, you know, really great explanation of all the the challenges that uh, face so many of the membership of SCMS. They do. And it's not like these are stable categories. All of us have had various kinds of relationships to precarity, um, whether ourselves or partners or um, other folks that we're working with. And it's just the most basic workplace justice uh, kind of issue, and it's not getting better, and we all really should be paying close attention to it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one note, speaking of the SEMS conference coming up, they chatted there about the idea of having childcare at the conference, and there isn't that as a, um, you know, kind of a set option right now, but there is a child care forum on the SEMS website that you can use to connect with other parents and to share child care favors. Um, I saw one post up there already. Um, there's someone hoping they could be, uh, get some help on Friday with child care. So if you are interested in such an exchange, the link to that forum is on page 23 of the conference program at the bottom of the page. So if you want to participate in, you know, helping out with child care during the conference, Check out page 23 of the conference program. Yes, please do. We should also note here that, uh, of course, Bill is an example, as he mentions in the interview, of, you know, in precariously um, in a precarious position now. And this notion of how it hurts the field, uh, that it is hurting us because he now has to step aside from Acamedia due to the demands of his new position and the lack of reward for, um, you know, service projects like Acamedia. So um, unfortunately, Bill has has had to step away from Acamedia. Yeah, and it's a it is a loss to us, but um, it's important to to make sure that we're not overloading too much work onto too few people, and especially with you know I mean Acamedia is not a startup at this point. I mean we've been doing this for quite a while, but over and over again, new initiatives are often created in the field by people who are on the fringes. Um, Flow was created by grad students. 
and working with a handful of uh, largely untenured faculty. Um, Acamedia continues to run on the work of lots and lots of folks who don't have have stable positions, who are are, uh, grad students and uh, moving in and out of visiting gigs and postdocs and that kind of thing. And, and it's a really, it's, it's really wonderful to, um, to have the kind of energy that comes from people who are, you know, hustling and working hard and trying to find new kind of crevices, uh, in the field. But that means that the entire field kind of relies upon not just the labor, but the creative spirit of people who are, have the least resources sometimes. Yeah. And that also helps to explain why we don't get Acamedia episodes out more frequently. Like I checked our last one was in November yeah. and it's just like, in, and I'm the most privileged here. I'm a tenured professor and, um, and even I, you know, struggle to find time for it. I want to, we've are, are, you know, already talked about how do we keep this going? Like we want to keep this going. We think it's important. I really enjoy doing it, but also it's like really hard to keep this going. Um, and so, you know, and, and I, I throw this out there again as a call for anyone who wants to attend the live episode in Denver. Um, if you want to not only attend that, but help us keep Acomedia going, we really welcome you because we're not sure it's all that yeah. possible. We could use some help. Yeah. So if you're at the conference, come by Saturday, three o'clock and see me and whatever we're going to have and the clowns. And well, no, we won't have clowns. I don't like clowns. No, 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 no clowns. Balloon animals. Okay. Yes. Jugglers, march and marching band. Totally fine. Yes. We got to draw the line at clowns. Yeah. We'll have circus like things, but not clowns. It's like a, it's like a circus without the trigger warnings, right? You know, you get Mm. like the good stuff. Um, you can, we could even have cotton candy, but no freaking clowns. Like, no. Right. All right. Um, so yeah, all of that good stuff, but if you can't make the conference, but you do want to help us out, you can always reach us at info at echo hyphen media.org. Uh huh. And, uh, or like I said, you know, email, uh, any of us personally and, We'd, We'd love, love to, to hear chat from with you. you about that. Yeah. In the meantime, one of the lessons that stands out to me is we just have to continue to build connections uh, between folks who are relatively stably employed and those who are not. And that sometimes needs to happen within departments. It sometimes needs to happen across departments. It needs to happen across universities and through organizations like this. So mm-hmm. um the more densely we can weave that web of interconnections, the better we can help look out for each other. Yeah, definitely. And, and again, that goes from the top of the board, you know, which I'm, I'm on now as secretary. And so, the, you know, keeping these conversations going in the board and keeping the continuity of, you know, as that conversation with Finley Freibert indicated, things that have been in the works since 2019 and still haven't happened yet. They're still working on things like ri- library access. And the only way that happens is if we keep chipping away at it. And again, from top to bottom, everyone, um, you know, trying to work together toward it. Yep. All right. Well, some thank yous then as we wrap up this episode. Thank you to Bill Kirkpatrick for all of your service for with Acamedia from the interview with Finley Freibert um, to all the way back to the very beginnings of this. I think Bill was one of the first people to reply. I put up a Google Doc for ideas, and I think Bill was one of the first to type in some notes into that. He was before me. Mm. Was. So, he's been He's been at this for dozens of episodes and, what, 10 years? 
Yeah, whenever we started. I don't remember. Something I don't, I don't like want to look back. That's too old. Uh, yep. But so, yeah, so he is at the University of Winnipeg now. And, and thank you, Bill, and good luck with all your work at Winnipeg. We're also grateful for the help of our other co-conspirators, Todd Thompson at the University of Texas, the holder of the golden years. <laughs> we've got Stephanie Brown at Washington College, and I don't think we've congratulated Frank Mondelli on finishing his PhD at Woo-hoo! Stanford. Yay! And he is now at UC Davis doing a postdoc. So congrats on that, Frank. Nice. We are also grateful to SEMS for uh, ongoing support, as well as the University of Notre Dame. All right, that wraps it up. So we will see you at SCMS. Some of us will see you, and uh, we look forward to finding out what happens at conferences in person. Go Balloon Man. 